Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. A generation ago, women who wanted a family but remained childless were relatively common. When I talk to my parents, they remember a resignation that if children didn't come, if you didn't want to adopt, you had no other option but to accept it. Today, facing infertility or the inability to carry a child does not necessarily mean that you won't have your own children. I'm grateful that many of my friends, for whom having a family was complicated, got there in the end. And sitting opposite me today is someone who is in a unique position. Faced with the prospect of not being able to carry a child, Anna Buxton decided to research the new and, at the time, little talked about world of surrogacy. We first met when she was expecting her first child, Isla, through a surrogate in India. And now she also has twins, Olive and Art, thanks to the help of a surrogate in America. Anna, thank you so much for coming here today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. So um, it's such an important conversation because I think an increasing amount of women um, are being able to have children um, via a surrogate. But I think there's still a lot of misconception around what surrogacy is exactly and who it's appropriate for. So so just talk me through what, what exactly surrogacy is. Okay. Well, there are two types of surrogacy. Gestational or host surrogacy is when you use the egg of the intended mother. And so the, the intended mother is the, the woman that can't have the baby but wants to have, the, yeah, have so a baby. I should say that as prospective parents, you're called the intended parents. So okay. intended mother and intended father. Yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so... Gestational or host surrogacy is the egg of the intended mother or an egg donor mm-hmm. and the sperm of the intended father or a sperm donor, which means there's no genetic link to the surrogate. The other type of surrogacy is called traditional or straight, and that's when you use the egg of the surrogate and then sperm from the intended father or a donor, and so there is a genetic link to the surrogate. Okay, and presumably... The, the first type of surrogacy you mentioned has only become available in the last two generations since IVF has become available. And so, I mean, surrogacy presumably has been going on informally probably forever. So surrogacy has been legal in the UK since 1985, um, but it has picked up in the last... 10 years hugely and a lot of that is to do do with uh, with IVF and um, equally the the um, the fact that it's become legal for same-sex parents to to have children mm-hmm. so now within uh, COTS and SUK the two charities who do surrogacy about half of those parents are same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. So who is it that would would I mean obviously you've mentioned same-sex couples who presumably that surrogacy is really the only way for them to have their own child yes. so they, need, they need a uterus yes. so yes. the surrogate provides the uterus um, but it also obviously in your case um, you couldn't have children. Yeah. So there are lots of medical reasons why a woman wouldn't be able to carry a pregnancy. For me, it was the result of a couple of miscarriages just after Ed and I got married. They were missed missed miscarriages, which meant that my body didn't get rid of the pregnancy. And so I had to have the pregnancy removed surgically. After... After that happened, um, I was quite quickly diagnosed with something called Asherman syndrome. And Asherman syndrome is the formation of scarring or adhesions within the uterus. 
um, which means that you that an egg can't implant. It is it's not it's pretty rare, um, but after after that diagnosis, I was I had five operations to try and restore my uterus to, so that I could carry a child. But actually, after the fifth operation, the surgeon said to me, "This isn't working. It's not ethical to." to operate any longer, we're going to give up. He said, your one final hope is to do a round of IVF with the, th- the thinking being that if the, the hormones that you use for IVF could potentially stimulate my uterus to create a lining, and if that happened, we could then re-implant the embryos. We did the round of IVF. My lining never got to more than a millimeter, and so we froze those embryos. Mm-hmm. So... For me, it was a medical reason. Um, and as I said, there are lots of different reasons why a woman can't, can't carry. Um, it can be premature menopause, multiple, IV, um, multiple rounds of failed IVF, multiple miscarriages, treatment from cancer, um, which, all of, which means that someone might not be able to carry a pregnancy. Mm. I think one of the important things to remember when you're talking to people about surrogacy is that so often a journey starts after many years of loss and fear and and anxiety but above all it represents hope for a couple mm-hmm. and for Ed and after I after lots of failure yeah so for Ed and I after three years of so much pain physically and emotionally we turned to surrogacy as a new beginning, a fresh start for us. And it was that that we clung on to and made us keep going in tr- to try and have a family. And when did you first consider surrogacy? When did that first become a conversation? It really didn't become a conversation until I was told, you will never carry a pregnancy. And for me, it seems, seems strange to say, but I was quite lucky in that the doctor said, it's just never going to happen. We know you can't carry. For many women, they're not always told that. And so multiple failed rounds of IVF or miscarriages can mean that someone might not be able to, but probably they can't. And so that decision often is is slower because they're not told definitively they can't carry a pregnancy. And I think because of a lack of understanding about what surrogacy is, it becomes a really hard decision to make that that jump. And this is, I hope, why people will find this podcast really interesting because, you know, very often it is a small germ of an idea and you just think, I don't even know if it would be possible or viable or what it involves. And I didn't really want to talk to people about it until I know a bit more about its viability. So thank you now for coming along because actually I think this will help a huge amount of people as it probably would have helped you if you've been able to download a podcast with yes. someone who'd gone through <laughs> surrogacy. Yeah. yeah. It probably was it you that initially thought of it first or was it Ed? I think I initially thought of it. Ed was um, was always very supportive. And again, because we knew I couldn't carry the pregnancy, it was the only way that we could have our genetic children. Because I did have viable eggs and he had viable sperm, it really seemed like a natural choice for us. Mm-hmm. And when you decided, and we'll talk about the whole experience, but when you decided you were going to explore this and you started t- telling people that that's what you were going to do, what was what was the reaction? And I'm interested actually also in, in the older generation because I think there is a lot of misunderstanding um, around surrogacy and how ethical it is. Um, and did you encounter any negativity? Very, very little negativity. Um, no one ever said anything negative to me. There was, it was more, and again from an older generation, um, it was more just misunderstanding about what surrogacy is. I think people of our generation know much more about IVF and how that works. Um, and so people genuinely just seemed a bit confused about the process and really didn't understand what it was. Um, but actually, I'm very pleased to say when I then spoke about it, um, I really didn't 
ever have anyone um, being critical or negative about about the concept. And people presumably, you I mean your friends knew you were, had gone through this pretty awful time, and so presumably they were just delighted that there was still some hope. Yes, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about how surrogacy works because, um, again, it's a sensational story. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And I know that it works differently in different parts of the world. So let's start with the UK. How does it, how does it work in the UK? So there are two important factors um, around surrogacy in the UK which make it entirely possible but more challenging than in other parts of the world where surrogacy is legal. So in the UK, the two issues are one one around the commercialization or not of surrogacy and one about the the legal aspect of it. In terms of commercialization, so as I said, in the UK, surrogacy is entirely legal, but you cannot advertise for a surrogate and a surrogate, surrogate cannot advertise to be a surrogate. There can can be no commercial brokering, which means that a third party can't match a surrogate with intended parents for for, for profit. And then thirdly, you can't pay a surrogate over and above the pregnancy-related expenses she would incur. And then on the legal part of it, there are, according to UK law, a surrogacy agreement or or the contract that you would draw up is unenforceable via law. And also at birth, the surrogate mother is deemed the legal mother. If she's married or in a civil partnership, her husband or civil partner is deemed the father. If she isn't married, your husband or partner is deemed the other parent. What it comes down to is the law is really, really complicated, but biology does not come up, come, play, play a part in who the legal parents are. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So worst case scenario, you know, a surrogate could carry a child that was genetically yours for example and then give birth and say actually I've changed my mind I'd like this to be my baby now which is obviously the worst nightmare of any you know intended parents yeah and in reality and to my knowledge in the history of of surrogacy in the UK that has never happened but it is a common misconception that that is a very real threat equally And on the legal part, it's what makes both the surrogate and the intended parents feel exposed is that if the intended parents, for some reason, turn around and said, we've changed our mind, we don't want to keep our baby, legally they could walk away and leave a surrogate with a baby that she never wanted. So what it means is that the combination of the commercial aspect and the legal aspect means there are just many more intended parents than there are surrogates. And if you compare the UK to other countries, the US specifically, it is a less commercial, less regulated environment, and the potential legal pitfalls are huge. And so if you have a couple who have had years of trauma and heartache an experience of it all going wrong when everyone said it wouldn't. Exactly. Then considering surrogacy, 
those those pitfalls can just be, seem so daunting that it often drives couples abroad because they just can't face anything else going wrong. Um, that is not to say that there is lots of people in, in the UK who do surrogacy, who who do it through, um, who may have a friend or occasionally a family member. And obviously those issues then don't, that, you know, they just aren't, those are no longer issues. And presumably there are, I mean, you said there are a lot more um, intended parents than surrogates willing to to do that um to do that job and so the chances of actually finding someone because how do you if no one's allowed to advertise it how do you then find a surrogate if you don't have a friend or family member who'll do it for you so in the uk there are two charities um one called surrogacy uk and one called cots and they are have charitable status and they and so they can match intended parents with surrogates there's also another organization called Brilliant Beginnings, which is a non-for-profit. And again, that they can match surrogates and intended parents. Because there are, because of the reasons we've talked about, the waiting lists for, for those charities can be very, very long. Um, and often they close their books to intended parents because they simply can't take people on without being without being able to tell them when they could match with a surrogate so when ed and i first started looking one charity had closed their books another said you are looking between one to three years to be matched with someone and then it's potentially another six to 12 months while you get to know a surrogate while you work out the legal bits so it can be a very very long drawn out process and how does it work abroad? How have, I mean, it feels like this law, people need to think about this a bit better. It doesn't seem that well designed. I mean, obviously laws are there to protect everyone. And I agree that they're, you know, this is a very, very complicated thing, but it, it seems like it doesn't work so well in the UK. Does it work better mm-hmm. overseas? It does. And I think um, if you start with the US, which is at the other end of the spectrum and often referred to as the gold standard for surrogacy. In the US, um, surrogacy is uh, determined by state law. So it does differ state by state, but some states, California probably being the best example, has very friendly surrogacy, um, friendly laws that, that basically provide an airtight legal framework. So even before a baby is born, in utero, the intended parents are legally the parents. The parents go straight, the intended parents go straight onto the birth certificate. So if you combine taking away any legal concerns with the fact that it is much more commercial in the state, so agencies are allowed to match a surrogate with an intended parent, and you're allowed to pay a surrogate a fee um, it's called an inconvenience fee over and above any expenses any expenses they've cur- occurred. Um, it just means there are so many more surrogates wanting to 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 be a surrogate. Mm-hmm. But presumably the cost is then much greater. It is yes. Um, and we'll come to that in a minute. Um, so you've obviously got the two extremes: yes. UK on one side, um, America on the other side. What is there anything in between? As are is it legal anywhere else? It is. The, the countries that people generally talk about are Canada, the Ukraine, Greece and Georgia. All of those are in between the UK and the US. There are also unregulated countries, which I would advise people to not even consider looking at going down that route. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we had, had Isla, um, India was also a destination which was very similar to the US, but um, they've actually now stopped foreigners having having children in and, India. And why did you choose India over the US? So when we first knew that we wanted to do surrogacy, we first looked at the UK. And as I said, being told that we would wait one to three years after everything we've been had been through, we just knew that wasn't going to be possible for us. In addition, like anyone ever going through any form of assisted fertility, 
clock's ticking, doctors are telling you you're getting older and older, and it just felt that it was too long. So the next stage was to look at the US and India. At the time for us, the US was simply out of the question because of the costs are so high. So then we considered India. Um, And in India, as I said, surrogacy was regulated, legal, and really well established. But I had read really negative press about surrogacy in India. And Ed and I always agreed, no matter how much we wanted a family, that would never be at the expense of another woman's well-being. So we researched and researched and researched, and there was very little about it. So we quickly came to the decision that we would have to go to India and do the research ourselves. So we went to three cities, uh, visited 10 different clinics, spoke to lots of charities, spoke to lawyers, and actually very quickly found an amazing doctor and a wonderful charity based in Delhi who were running a program centered around surrogates and supporting their families about raising women's um, place in a family and in the hierarchy of a family. So it was a holistic program around bettering women's lives. And we felt really passionately that it it felt right to us. So um, that's what we chose to do. And so you had your frozen embryos. You can you can you can send them over, can't you? You can, can. post them over. There's but... a company called CryoZoom, which <laughs> CryoZoom, I love <laughs> which it. You can uh, send. So we um, we sent our embryos over to India. We essentially we didn't fly with them, but we did. We we flew over to India when our embryos got there. We met um, we met our surrogate. She didn't speak English, but we were with a translator. I always remember when we first met, I was so nervous, and so was she. We just barely could speak because we just... It's one of those things, sort of, what if she doesn't like me and what if I don't like her? But as soon as we started talking about her family and her children, she lit up. She could see that Ed and I just wanted a child. Um, So we agreed we would go ahead and our embryos were, were implanted to Stapala. And she, um, and what, what was the reason that she was doing this? Was it financial gain? This was going to make a big difference to her life, was it? Um, it was, it was financial gain. Um, and often that is what um, drove women in India to do it. The way, the charity that we worked with, um, it was more, it was, it was, she was doing it to be able to educate her children. So how she was paid was all around um, helping her finance education for children through schools, as opposed to giving a lump sum of money that would, you know, that could be used for other reasons. Mm-hmm. And so you obviously flew over to meet her. Yeah. And did you stay there while the embryos were implanted or did you fly back to London and... We did. So we were there for about 10 days. Um, didn't have to be, but it felt right to, to be did there. Did you see her every day? Did you, we didn't, did you feel we, you had to? No, we didn't see her every day. We saw her a few times, um, went for the transfer and then and then flew home. And so the majority of the pregnancy, you were in the UK. Yep. She was in India. She didn't speak English. How was that for you? That must have been quite stressful. It was it was really hard. A lot of um, a lot of the communication was through the doctor. So it was very different to to our experience later with the twins, which, which we can talk about. So it was mainly the the medical side was all through the doctor. We would get pictures of Shapala. She would send us videos about how she was feeling, showing us her tummy. Um, but it was, as I said, it was mainly through the doctor. It was, it was, I would never underestimate, understate to anyone just how difficult a surrogate pregnancy is, especially when you are divided by thousands of miles. It, even though as soon as you create an embryo, as soon as they're implanted, as soon as you see a first sack and then a heartbeat and this baby growing you feel connected to to that tiny little being and that's your child and the thought that that is thousands of miles away and you're not there albeit that your child is in utero it just seems 
so huge and so unbelievable and so crazy um, that it is it is a it's a roller coaster the highs are so high and the lows are so low um, that it it's very hard to put into words just how how huge the whole thing feels I mean I see women on a daily basis kind of worrying about their pregnancy and worrying that they've done something wrong you know have I spent too long in a polluted environment and did I eat something that I shouldn't eat and obviously then when someone else is carrying your baby and as you said thousands of miles separate you but you're also from very different cultures that's got to be very difficult as well I mean I just think one of the hardest things about being a parent is is trying not to worry too much um, I, I certainly did not achieve not worrying too much. <laughs> I worried um, every day about something. I was on the phone all the time. I remember a doctor in India, I called her panicking about something. And I said, well, according to Google. And she said, well, Dr. Google is not a good doctor. And she got very cross with me. Um, it is really difficult in terms of the worrying about you know, potentially your surrogate and what she's doing every day and what her environment eating. and what she's eating. From my perspective, and this is what I always say to people, is that you have to trust that woman to look after your child. I made the decision, me and Ed made the decision that we put our trust in her, that she was doing this because she wanted to give us a healthy baby. So I trusted that she would not do anything to, to, that, that wasn't appropriate as a pregnant woman, like she wouldn't have done with her own children. And I think if you try, if you worry too much about that, or if you try to stipulate too many conditions, that wouldn't be respectful to the woman that you'd ask to look after your baby. Mm. And then you were there for the birth? Yes, yeah, so we, um, we flew, the, the pregnancy had been uncomplicated no problems at all so we flew out to India at 37 weeks because we wanted to make sure we were there for the birth when we got there we had about a week in India which was wonderful we got to go to Chapala's last few scans which was was lovely to see her and to be there for those um, and then at 38 weeks um, she went into to labor and um they and and had a c-section so we were we weren't in the room culturally it wouldn't have been appropriate for us to be in the room with her but we were in in the next door room so as soon as Isla was born she was brought in into us and did Chapala see her did she hold her or it Isla came straight to you she came she came straight to us and that that's what was always agreed. Um, it was then up to her what she how, what she wanted to do. She decided to. She was obviously stayed in hospital for a little bit because um, because she'd had a C section, and she said to us she would tell us when she was ready to meet and hold Isla. And I think it was about five days later that she said she would like to come and and hold her and and meet her. So that's what we did. And I mean, to finally hold your baby um, must have been absolutely wonderful. And would you, I mean, you've obviously never given birth. And I think a lot of, a lot of women are told they have this sort of amazing surge of love for their child as soon as they hold them. But I think in, in, in reality, a lot of people are so relieved that they're there um, and addled by hormones that they sort of feel exhausted and relieved rather than superbly happy. What was that? that feeling like for you it there was absolutely just I think as you say a sort of surge of love and happiness and relief um I think I was totally exhausted and slightly traumatized from from the nine months of or, or actually probably really the five years we'd waited to get Isla um that it just it it just felt magical and, and unbelievable. And that you couldn't believe she was here. We, we couldn't believe that. And, and I know with surrogacy then, it's not necessarily um, straightforward afterwards. So in India, you guys were from the, right from the beginning, the parents, legal parents yes. of, of Isla. Yeah. But you couldn't just fly home the next week. No. So um, one of the complications with India and some other countries is that unless you're born in the UK... You, you you don't get a, a UK passport straight away. 
And if you're born in India, you don't get an Indian passport unless you unless you're of Indian origin. So we lived in Delhi for six months because it took us six months to get Isla a British passport. And that wasn't just because she was born through surrogacy. Getting a, a British passport, if you're not born in the UK, can just be a very long, laborious process. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had six months living there, which were which was really hard. It's a very different city to London and it's big and noisy and dirty and polluted. Um, but we also had wonderful days where we met wonderful people. Um, did and we you meet were, other people doing the surrogacy thing? We did, we did meet other people who were doing surrogacy. Um, a lot of people, a lot of British couples who were, were of Indian origin, so had family in India and were doing surrogacy there. So had a bit more of a support network than we did. Um, and then we met just other lovely couples who, who, who lived there. Um, it, it, it wasn't easy and it wasn't, wouldn't be how the place I would choose to spend the first six months of of life with your first baby but also I think we were just so happy to to have her um and there was very there was something special about it being the three of us and our little new family sort of locked away in a an apartment in Delhi just sort of just focusing so on her then focusing on her yeah yeah so then obviously it was the idea always that you really wanted a sibling for Isla, um, because then it changed, didn't didn't it? In India, the the surrogacy is now illegal for foreigners. Is, am I right? Yes, exactly. So um, we came back after six months, and about sort of nine months after that, we started thinking about number two. Um, without a doubt, we always wanted a, a sibling for Isla. I've got two sisters. I'm close to Ed's one of five. We always dreamt of having a larger family. Um, so we returned back to the UK and thought, well, let's try here. But again, the waiting lists were just so long that we just, we just couldn't face that uncertainty. Um, so we looked at, began looking at other options. Some friends of friends had had two children in Canada. Um, and so we, so we looked at that as an option and I think we like the idea of Canada. It always seems like a wonderful, beautiful country. Um, and in terms of the framework in Canada, it's very similar to the UK in that it's not commercial, but the legal framework is much more like the US. So it's, it's a nice hybrid of, of the two systems. Um, so we found, we, had, we still had some embryos in London. And we found an agency in Canada who had been recommended to us. So we started... So what happened is through the agency, we were given profiles of of potential surrogates. And actually, the first lady that we met took about five months to to be given a profile. She seemed okay. And we were, to be honest, just really desperate to get on with it. So we froze our embryo... flew our embryos out to Toronto and um, we ended up with with this surrogate we ended up doing we had three embryos we did two we had two failed transfers and then we miscarried at five weeks we then felt that we couldn't go further with with um, that surrogate and so after about another five months we were matched with another lady And I spent about five months talking to her. And after those five months, she said, I'm not really sure. This was more me really sort of just investigating and dipping my toe. It might be something I do in the future, but I'm not ready to do it now. So at that point, we said sort of enough was enough with Canada. I think in my heart of hearts, I always knew that both the surrogates we'd been matched with weren't right. The people that we were working with who were supposed to be supporting us, it never felt right. And I'm a big believer that if, if something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. And I wish we'd sort of 
stepped away and took a breath and said, no, we, we, I don't, we don't want to be doing this. But the determination that drives you to keep going and keep going can often lead to desperation. And we, we just had to accept that we'd made mistakes, other people had made mistakes, um, that it's a really, really tough process, but we were just going to keep going. And having had, um, having had that very difficult period, we then decided actually we were going to go to California, which is, as I said, sort of deemed the center of excellence for surrogacy and, and start there um, with, with a new set of, of support and people. And did you immediately recognize why it was considered the gold standard? Was your experience totally different? It was very different. First of all, we, we were recommended a, a wonderful IVF clinic and um, we spoke to them first and just the doctors there, their, their experience with surrogacy um, was, was incredible and, and I felt so comforted by them and their experience and their commitment to us that we then started looking for a surrogacy agency in San Diego because as I said before, in the US, you can there are agencies are allowed to match. Um, so we started looking for agencies, and and there are so many in California, and they're all sort of essentially doing the same thing, but they all have slightly different philosophies on on how they help surrogates, how they recruit them, how they support them, and we ended up working with a lady who'd been a surrogate herself, loved it, and had set up a really little agency. But I, I just, I liked her and I trusted her. So we, we started working with her. Um, and it's at that point that as, a, as an intended parent, you, write, you start writing your profile and then you start seeing surrogates' profiles. Um, at that point, it's when it, it starts feeling a bit like dating. <laughs> <laughs> and how many surrogates did you see before you settled on the one that you went with? So I think we went through a lot of profiles. One of the, the one of the reasons for doing the profiles is that you have to be aligned on pregnancy related issues. So things like if doctors recommended invasive testing, would you do it? If um, doctors said that termination could potentially be an option given a medical issue, would you terminate? Um, lifestyle choices that sort of thing so you write that on your profile as you the surrogates and you have to be aligned on those specific issues you also have to be aligned on what you imagine your relationship to be during a pregnancy what and what you want that relationship to be after any child is born so that whittles down um profiles so i probably saw about 10 profiles of, of ladies i then of those, I think I spoke to six on Skype. So once you sort of, once you like someone and they like you, you have a Skype call. And I spoke to about six. And when I finally spoke to Holly for a first time over Skype, I knew she was the one. And that's not to say, I'm not saying that I knew no one's perfect and that, that it, but I, I liked her rationale for doing surrogacy. I liked just she was very pragmatic and very sensible. Her husband was really supportive. He joined the call. Her children knew, her parents knew. She had a massive support network. And for me, being thousands of miles away, that just felt really appropriate that she had all those people rooting for her. Um, did she so live in California? She did. And she lived in San Diego, very close to the clinic. And why was she doing it? She... Um, for a couple of reasons. She really enjoyed being pregnant. She had three children and loved pregnancy, never had any complications, just sort of was amazed that the female body could grow and produce children. She'd had friends who'd done surrogacy and they had always talked about it as a really positive experience. Um, and she could earn some money. Yeah. And how much do they typically earn in, in the US? 
as so a surrogate? In, so in the US, you can pay a surrogate anywhere between about $30,000 and about $60,000. Mm-hmm. And that range is due to, um, it, it can range by state by state, if someone's been a surrogate before, um, if they're, if they if they're if they're working lots of reasons but that's about the the figure so it's it's um it's a large sum of money mm-hmm. and so you transferred embryos yes they were successful they were successful two two <laughs> <laughs> and how was the pregnancy experience how did it differ from when you were in india so with with holly it was um it was much more about my relationship with her so we would, she knew that, and I think in some ways that made it much more difficult because I, in India, you know, I would have my weekly updates from the doctor and I just knew I have to wait each week for that information. Whereas with Holly, I could WhatsApp her every 20 minutes. So we would WhatsApp sort of once a day. She knew that because, because they were eight hours behind us, as soon as she woke up, she had to message me to say I'm okay Um, because if I didn't hear from her I would think well she can't fill them anymore what's going on so she was amazing about managing me in terms of the doctors um, you when when anyone's pregnant and it's the same with a surrogate she was the patient but the doctors were wonderful and that they let Holly FaceTime me during any appointment so I could be there with her on FaceTime at the scans, seeing the heartbeats, listening to the conversation that she would be having with the doctor. Um, And then because she allowed it, if I ever had any extra questions, I was allowed to then speak to the doctors separately. So again, it was really hard, really stressful, still felt like this huge, crazy endeavor. Um, Again, that feeling that how can these things be so far away how could Isla's brother and sister be thousands of miles away and we're not there with them just it it just weighed on me the whole time um but we were thankful and very lucky that it was an uneventful pregnancy um and that communication was was lovely and that it melt you know it, I felt more involved and when it came to giving birth, did you then, you obviously flew over to America and spent another significant amount of time there? Was it the same thing as, as India? Well, one of the things Holly and I love to talk about was the birth plan. So we had this very extensive plan all worked out whereby it would be Holly and I together in the room. Ed and Isla would be next door. Her family would be nearby. So as soon as the babies were born... I would carry them through to Ed and Isla and Isla would see them with me. Holly would then have her family and and they would be together. And then when she was ready, the five of us would bring them in to her so she could see them, but also her children could actually see the family she'd created. And it was it was going to be perfect <laughs> model model birth, um, like so many birth plans. So, yes, exactly. In reality, at thirty four weeks, um, the day I stopped working, actually, and we're at a dinner party with friends because it was a week before we were about to fly out. I got a call from the doctor saying, "I don't want to alarm you. Holly's gone into labour. I'm doing a C section in twenty minutes. I've got to go now because I'm preparing for surgery." And he was gone. <gasps> And I kept thinking, they've made a mistake. It's going to be a false alarm. He's going to call me back in 10 minutes and say, oh, no, sorry, she's fine. An hour later, I got a call from two NICU nurses together saying, introducing themselves, saying that they were the NICU nurses responsible that night for our babies, that they were fine, they were ventilated, but they were doing well. And did they have names? Oh, my oh. God. <laughs> um, so I managed to fly out the next morning. So I was with Olive and Art about 18 hours in NICU after they were born. Um, and then Ed Nyla came out a few days later. Um, it, was not, it was not what we hoped for. It was not the birth plan we hoped for. I remember Holly just 
when I first saw her just saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, which, how she could have ever apologized to me. But ultimately, the babies were healthy, she was healthy. And that's, you know, for that, we're, we're forever grateful. And you have a story. Yeah. It might not be the one you anticipated, <laughs> yeah. but life is very rarely yeah. what we anticipate. Yeah. And... Did you spend a long time in America Did, or could you get them home a little bit more quickly? So um, different to India, any child born in America is immediately granted an American passport and US citizenship. So um, Olive and Art have an American passport. They are American citizens or they have joint citizenship. So in theory, we could have flown home about three, no, about a month after they were born. We actually decided to stay there for just over two months. Um, I think because they were twins and could have been little and there could have been complications, we just decided, you know, we're going to rent somewhere for two months so we know we're ready to fly back. They had had all their vaccinations by the time they'd moved back, um, by the time we flew back. So so we had a lovely time in, in San Diego for, for eight weeks with them. But as I said, you know, I know lots of people who do it in America and they come back after about a month. Mm-hmm. And is that is that it? Is that your family complete? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> You've had such a, a journey. Just to put it into perspective, I'd love to sort of talk about vague costs. I know that it, it sometimes seems a bit crass to talk about costs, especially when it you know, concerns having your babies. Yeah. But I do think it's a big part of this conversation Absolutely. and I'm sure there are going to be people listening who will either be considering themselves or, you know, maybe talking to friends of theirs who um, who might be considering it. So vague costs. Um, I mean, in the UK, I know it obviously it differs hugely, um, but what, what would the costs be in the UK? What do you have to allow? So in the UK, um, as we said, you can pay a surrogate expenses that she's incurred during a pregnancy and that can range it's a big range that can range from between about seven and sixteen thousand pounds and that range is to do with um whether your surrogate works the type of childcare she has the distance she lives from the intended parents so it's a, it's so there is a big range and and when you go into it in the uk you have to understand what that range is and account for it um but that also doesn't in, in, um, include professional costs clinic costs for your surrogate um things like insurance and wills and all those really important things so the charities say that you should allow for about thirty thousand pounds in the uk now that doesn't include the ivf costs so whether you're creating your own embryos or you're creating embryos with a donor, you have to put that on top of it. And those costs really, how long is a piece of string? Yeah. It's, it, that depends so much on, on your circumstances in terms of the IVF part of surrogacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the US, the costs are higher. So as I said, you can pay a surrogate between about thirty and $60,000 but to then, as an overall budget for all the professional fees, um, legal, insurance, medical, flights to and from the US, um, they say that you need to probably, the, this includes IVF actually, so we're not really comparing like for like, but a good budget would be about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars mm-hmm. in the US, mm-hmm. um, and then in between. I mean, you mentioned there were, you know, was Canada slightly cheaper, presumably because uh, Canada was um, cheaper, so costs more similar to the UK. Um, but on top of that, you know, flights to and from Canada, living there while you're while you're not. You know, while you have a baby so so you would need a higher budget for that mm-hmm. and um and presumably sort of Georgia and the other places that you mentioned sort of India are sort of in between the sort of UK and the US yeah I to be honest um so India more expensive than certainly more expensive than the UK um especially having to account for the fact that you have to live somewhere else for six mm-hmm. months um the other places I can't talk to specifically mm-hmm. about costs because we never we never mm-hmm. looked into them mm-hmm. Do you think on reflection 
that it would have been easier just to go straight to America? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I look back at our whole journey um, and it's it's hard to say that we should have done things differently because ultimately every decision we made led to our three children. Um, and probably we should have gone straight there, but maybe we would have thought that's too expensive and, and it's too much, but that, but after so many years of trying and wasting even more money, we couldn't, we, we couldn't end things in Canada on a, on a sour note. We had to keep going. Um, so with hindsight, maybe, but mm-hmm. we have our three children. And obviously the babies are all genetically yours. Yes. Did you just know that right at the beginning? Did they feel like yours right right from the start? I I don't know if that's what is the important part to me. Um, they feel like my children. I don't know if that's because they're genetically mine or like any parent, you're just so invested in those tiny little beings from day one. Um, they're yours anyway. I think one of the things that I found really difficult going through this whole process was that no one ever said it was my fault and and at all and never made me feel that it was my fault. But ultimately, my body failed and I couldn't carry babies. And I felt guilty about that. Um, And I felt less of a woman because of it. Um, And... Had I known now what I think it is to be a mother, I don't think I would have carried that weight with me throughout our entire journey. I'm no less of a mother because I didn't carry my babies. I Don't get me wrong, I still, if I see a pregnant friend or someone on the street or an Instagram picture of a perfect pregnancy, I can be frozen with sadness. But it doesn't make me... I'm no less of my children's you know, mother because of because I didn't carry them, and I, as I said. And to me, being a mother is about being there every single day for them. And I make mistakes every single day, but I'm still there for them. And that's what makes me a mum to, to Isla, Olive and Art. Um, and I think that is what I think about this whole thing. And... And really, I pinch myself that we met two exceptional women from other parts of the world who, you know, who made me a mum. Do you have any contact with them still? Not with Shapala. She chose not to remain in contact. Although on Isla's birthday, every year I write a letter to her children to tell her about Isla or tell them about Isla so that they know what their mum did. Um, and with Holly, we we WhatsApp about once every two months, and I just send her pictures of the babies and what we're up to. Um, and I asked her on their birthday to send a picture of her and her family, just to say I'm thinking about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they will always have have that. And obviously, having two brothers who were born in the same way as, as Isla one was was obviously an opportunity for her to really understand the circumstances of her birth when did you start talking to her about that um so Isla from before she could even remember um we have spoken about how she was brought into this world and we continue to do so really proudly and repeatedly and consistently um, we just say to her that mummy's tummy was broke, is broken, and so another mummy helped us by growing Isla in, in her tummy. Um, and children are just so pragmatic about those things. She says, oh, great. Um, she remembers Shapala's name, and she offer, often re- references Shapala and Holly, so she really, for her, it was a lovely that she got to see and meet Holly and so can really understand it. Um, we talk about India all the time. Her nursery has got lots of pictures of memorabilia of India. We talk about what a wonderful country it is and when we'll take her there. Much to her father's horror, she supported India in the Cricket World Cup. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and we will do the same with with Olive Bernard. 
Um, and if there are people listening who are interested in exploring this further, where where would it be good for people to start investigating it and investigating which option might be appropriate for them? So, um, as I said, in the UK, the two charities are Surrogacy UK and COTS, and they are wonderful organisations. Um, staffed with just the most lovely people and so that's the best place to start in terms of UK UK surrogacy Um, and there's this other organization Brilliant Beginnings doing something very similar Um, and they will and they have a bit more information on um, on international surrogacy so so those are sort of the the best places for information I would say and what I really missed was finding people who'd been through it because um, that's really that's really what you you need to to do to be able to make that decision to go for it or not it's talking to other people who've been through it um, so and that's why I'm here talking and do talk to lots of couples about it because um, I'm just so passionate about how we brought our children into this world and it is a it's a wonderful option um if it's possible for people yeah because obviously when when we first met um my I'd had a, a stillborn son and yeah. they'd said to me that you know it would be probably a bit of a bad idea to try and have another baby and it was a really lovely opportunity for me to talk to you and, yeah. and I'm so grateful for that actually because I got to ask you all the questions I need and I actually got to talk to someone who had been through it and it you know in the end we decided it wasn't appropriate for us you know we had our two children and and we made that decision not to have another baby but I'm really grateful to you and to your honesty that you know it felt that that difficult decision was a lot easier to make and I feel really confident that it was the right decision for us so um, thank you for talking not just to me but to everyone and I know that I mean we have you know many many thousands of listeners here and I know that you know this conversation will be hugely helpful to people is there I mean, you've obviously given loads of sort of recommendations. Um, Is there one specific thing you wish you'd known before you'd started the whole process? I think... For me, it really was being able to talk to other people. That's what I missed. Um, And it just having to go out and find so much information it, it it felt like a full-time job and always something felt missing because it, it felt to us like quite a lonely process mm-hmm. um and I just think being able to to share your experience or potential experience with someone who's done it was really important and did you find anyone to talk to a, f- a few um but but really not many not many who had been in in our situation Aside from that, um, I think this is probably a broader, something broader about about fertility and, and assisted fertility is that often I think it, it, so much of the attention was about me because it was because of the medical issues that we'd faced and often it was sort of me forming a relationship with the surrogates. Um, that I think Ed was often a bit forgotten and, and this journey was both both of us together and it was my it was both of our stories to tell and it was his story to tell too. So I I do think it's really important to remember your your partner when you're doing anything like this. Remember your partner, but also remember other people's partners. And because yes. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be supporting someone who's going through it. And yeah, that I think is a is a really important thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm presuming I've talked a lot about baby loss on this podcast, and a lot of people who you know find that they're very lonely after that happens has found that have found that social media has been a really good way of meeting people in a similar position. And I wonder whether, when it comes to surrogacy, you know, we can bitch as much as we want about social media. And believe me, I'm not. not it's not all positive. <laughs> but you know, in that kind of circumstance it probably is quite a good way of just getting in touch with other people who may be experiencing something similar to you yeah absolutely um and I recently have become a bit more active on social media in terms of my journey um and I have had women out of the blue um saying that they're going through something similar and and could we have a chat or a coffee and it's been it's been so lovely that that avenue um, has been opened up for, as you said, often we 
like to criticize social media but but that's been really positive oh that's thank you what's yeah. so where can people follow you on social media um anna three buxton oh perfect well anna thank you it's been such a lovely conversation i can't tell you how what a joyful day this is for me <laughs> that we sit here you having been faced with the kind of prospect of really not being able to have your own family and here you are with three little gorgeous children i've seen photos uh, <laughs> at home so um it's really what a great day what a great story so thank you oh, well thank you for having me and thank you all for downloading another episode of the parenthood please do subscribe rate and review us wherever you get this podcast from it's actually a really important way for to let other people find out about the parenthood you can also follow me i'm on instagram at marina.fogel but in the meantime thanks for listening and from both anna and me bye Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.